Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. But again, this is another one of those episodes where I have to couch that. So not that long ago, I did a series of episodes about the company Boeing and its history, which once again is in the news as I record this episode. So the week I'm recording this, which is the very end of October, actually technically today is November 1st, the CEO of Boeing just appeared before Congress to answer questions about the tragedies involving two 737 MAX aircraft crashes. Politicians asked some very pointed questions to find out when people at Boeing became aware of problems with the aircraft and how much they knew, as well as other details. So in this episode, I want to explore exactly what went wrong and why. And while you could summarize the story by saying a sensor and some software malfunctioned, that's not really a full understanding of exactly what went wrong and why it went wrong. So let's start with the 737 MAX in general. And the 737 MAX's history really only dates back to July 2011. That's when Boeing learned that its competitor, Airbus, had made a deal with American Airlines to sell 200 A320neo aircraft. And the A320 family of aircraft first debuted in 1986. They're intended to serve as short to medium range aircraft. They are narrow-body aircraft, which means they have a cabin that measures no more than 13 feet or 4 meters wide. They have a single aisle going down the length of the cabin with seats on either side. In other words, these aircraft serve the same function as something like the 737 does. So it might be a good idea to do a quick rundown on the different sizes of aircraft and what their intended functions are. And to understand why we even have these different sizes of aircraft, it helps to understand the history of the development of airports and airlines in general. I find that it can be easy to forget that the systems we have in place today evolved over time out of necessity. But I also know that's not the focus of our episode, so we're going to be super general. I'm not going to spend an enormous amount of time on this. So, the Wright brothers. Really, I'm, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But they developed the first real airplane in the United States in the early 20th century. By 1925 in the United States, the government had passed the Air Mail Act. That gave the Postmaster General the authority to work with private airlines flying between certain routes, the ability to carry mail. This was sort of laying the groundwork for the modern airline. The government followed that up with the Air Commerce Act, which gave powers to the Secretary of Commerce to create the rules and regulations that would apply to commercial aircraft. That included requirements to license pilots, to certify specific aircraft as being safe for commercial operation, to establish air routes, and to create rules for air traffic. Now, many airlines in this time were regional. They were operating between a handful of cities within a general area of the United States. But they gradually were able to grow to provide service to more airports further afield. This might require a certain number of hops between cities, and it created an incentive for aircraft and engine manufacturers to find ways to increase the flying range of aircraft to allow for more direct service options between distant cities. The U.S. government wasn't done yet, though. In 1938, Congress passed the Civil Aeronautics Act, which in turn created the Civil Aeronautics Board, or CAB. 
One of the board's responsibilities was to regulate airfare prices for passengers. Another was that it could assign specific routes to airlines, giving permission for them to operate flights between specific cities. The price regulation meant that airlines couldn't really compete against each other with battling with lower fares for routes between the same cities. A ticket on one airline for a trip between, let's say, New York and Chicago would cost pretty much the same as a ticket on another airline because of this regulation. So that meant that these airlines had to differentiate themselves uh, in service because price was going to be the same no matter where you were going, right? If you went on one airline versus another, you're going to be paying the same amount. So why would you choose one over the other? Had to be because of the service. Further, uh, if the board determined that an airline was providing substandard service along a specific route, then the board would allow other airlines to operate along that same route in order to create the competition needed to improve service. So if the board were to look at, say, TWA and say, your service between this city and that city has been reported as being substandard, we're now going to allow these three other airlines to compete in that space the idea was that things would improve. In 1958, the U.S. government established what we now call the Federal Aviation Agency, or FAA, which oversees airline safety operations. Twenty years later, in 1978, the economic climate had changed in the United States. Foreign airlines offering service to the U.S. were not bound by the price regulations of the Civil Aeronautics Board. American airline companies could not compete with the lower airfares posted by these foreign companies, and there was a growing resistance to regulations in general in the U.S. So Congress passed a deregulation act, and the Civil Aeronautics Board disbanded. The price regulations came to an end, and airlines in the United States could charge whatever they felt the market could bear for any of their airfares. This also allowed new airlines to join the market, which had previously been dominated by just a few major carriers. The influx of competition was a boon to passengers as far as airfare price is concerned, but less so when it came to in-flight experience. More on that in just a moment. But it also meant that some of the larger airline carriers were struggling to compete. They had grown very large, and they depended on a certain amount of revenue that happened to have been guaranteed by the regulated prices. So when those regulations went away and smaller, more nimble companies began operating routes previously commanded by these giant companies, well, the giants began to wobble a little bit. This was exacerbated by an economic recession in the 1990s that saw a reduction in air travel, and some of the big airlines outright collapsed into bankruptcy like TWA and Pan American. So another recession in 2001, and then the terrorist attacks on 9-11, further hurt the airline industry, which would remain unprofitable for five more years. Now since then, you know, since 2006, airlines have managed to turn things around for the most part. Now, the reason all of that was important is that it creates the foundation for us to understand why there are so many different types of aircraft out there and why conditions in aircraft have changed over time. And this in turn informs us as to why Boeing made specific decisions. 
So you may have seen images of air travel in the 1950s or 1960s when it looked like everyone was dressed in their Sunday best and they're enjoying a big comfy seat with plenty of leg room and they might even be chowing down on an impressive looking meal. It's a pretty dramatic contrast to what you find on a typical commercial jet today. So let's talk about the different types of aircraft classes and what they're for and why things have changed. So you've got wide-body aircraft. These are the ones that are meant for long-range routes usually, such as transatlantic or transpacific routes. They typically have two aisles running the length of the cabin, and the width of the cabin tends to range from 16 to 20 feet or 5 to 6 meters. You can have up to 10 or maybe even 11 seats arranged in a single row in the economy class. They really pack them in like sardines in some aircraft. That means that with the size of some of these aircraft, you can have configurations that can carry more than 800 passengers, which is mind-blowing to me. Most of them are more like 250 to 450 passengers, but there are some configurations that have significantly more than that. The original wide-body aircraft were something like luxury vehicles. They were intended to provide a superior experience with more room per passenger than you would find on other types of aircraft. So they weren't all about packing as many people in as possible. But then once the industry underwent deregulation, folks at airlines began to figure out that there was another tactic they could use. They could cram way more seats on those aircraft, actually reducing the space for the average traveler and maximizing the number of passengers that could fit on a single flight. After all, the airlines were no longer restricted to a regulated airfare price. They didn't have to compete on the basis of service. They could compete by offering lower airfares, and they could make up the difference by putting more people on a single plane. So they could actually make more money per trip, even by offering lower airfares per customer, by doing the old standby, you make it up in volume. And after balancing out the pros and cons of delivering a superior experience to the alternative of just going for the cold, hard cash, most airlines went the cold, hard cash route. And thus, we started down the pathway of encountering aircraft with decreasing amounts of legroom, narrower seats, and other features that fuel stand-up comedian routines. These huge aircraft are really expensive. They also can't fit on all runways, and not every airport can accommodate them. They were used for routes where it made the most economic sense to use them, typically on those transcontinental or transoceanic flights. These tend to be long-range aircraft. Because they are more expensive to purchase, maintain, and operate, airlines typically have fewer of them in their fleets, so they dedicate them to these long-range routes. Enter the narrow-body aircraft. These became popular starting in the 1960s, but they really took off pun intended, after deregulation. They tend to be much less expensive to purchase, maintain, and operate than their larger cousins. They can fit in more airports and more runways, and they played into an economic strategy that airlines used to compete against each other. Because there was one other thing you could do to use to your advantage besides the level of service or the price of the airfare, and that was the frequency of flights for specific routes. 
Now, this really got going with deregulation and the emergence of new airlines. Now, passengers could have a lot more options when they were booking a trip. Earlier, you might have a route that only had two or maybe three flights per day between two cities. So the passenger had to fit their schedule with the airline's schedule. But with more routes approved and more narrow-body aircraft in fleets, airlines had the chance to increase the frequency between certain cities that had demand that warranted it. And as you would imagine, most of the time, this would involve cities that had regular traffic between them. You weren't suddenly going to see an enormous increase in flights to some city that was far out of the way of everything else. Because if there's no demand between two cities, it makes no sense to operate, you know, hourly flights between them. But for some routes, that's exactly what did make sense. So airlines began to compete by telling customers, hey, we operate enough flights to your destination that you don't have to worry about conforming to our schedule. We've got a flight that fits your schedule. So this was the era in which we saw the narrow-body, mid-range aircraft come into prominence, and that included the Boeing 737. The original 737 was introduced by Boeing in 1966. It was nicknamed a square airplane because the length of the aircraft was the same as the width of its wingspan. Both were approximately 93 feet, or a little more than 28 meters. It's a twin-jet engine aircraft, and the original 737 had an engine mounted under each wing. This becomes an important element when we get to the design of the 737 MAX. Now, there are different versions of the 737 that have different dimensions. The original 737-100 entered service for the airline Lufthansa, among others. United Airlines expressed interest in purchasing some 737s, but that airline wanted a slightly longer version of the aircraft, so Boeing adjusted it and then created a version of the 737 called the 737-200. And there are several others, including the recent 737 MAX. Okay, so aircraft like the 737 from Boeing and the A320 from Airbus served similar purposes, to act as a short or mid-range aircraft capable of carrying around 200 passengers, which varies depending upon the aircraft's configuration. By 2006, Boeing had been relying upon the 737 design for 40 years, when the company began to consider the possibility of an entirely new design to fill essentially the same function as the old reliable 737. That decision was a huge one and would require a lot of steps. So Boeing kicked the idea down the road a few times, and then we get to 2011 and American Airlines ordering the 200 Airbus aircraft. It sent a signal to Boeing that delays were going to cost the company big time. Now, I'll explain more in just a moment. But first, you know, guys, I've talked a lot about privacy and security on this show in the past. And I have to admit that there have been times that I haven't really taken it that seriously, as seriously as I should anyway. But we all know that there are pitfalls out there, and it doesn't make sense to just hope you avoid them by luck. And heck, there's all that tracking that's going on by everything from online stores to social media sites. Your data is becoming their commodity. 
It's for these reasons that I recommend using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. That's a great deal for peace of mind. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash techstuff. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash techstuff for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash techstuff to learn more. Now, let's get back to the 737 MAX. All right. I left off saying that Boeing concluded that developing an all-new type of aircraft wasn't going to, pun intended, fly, as Airbus began to gain popularity among airlines. And American Airlines had, as part of its plan, an order for a re-engined 737 aircraft. Boeing would need to focus on that effort, and it abandoned the design of an entirely new aircraft. It finally said... Okay, it doesn't make sense for us to create a new aircraft from the ground up. Let's go back to the 737 and make some adjustments. This also brought with it a few other potential benefits. Developing a new aircraft is time-consuming and incredibly expensive. Not only is the development process itself expensive, then there's the certification phase in which the aircraft must pass requirements set by the various aviation authorities around the world in order to be allowed to operate as a commercial aircraft. And then there's the training phase. Pilots have to train on the new aircraft to learn its systems and how it flies. Not all aircraft behave the same up in the air, and that means it's a really big deal to invest in an all-new type of aircraft. It's asking for a lot of resources, both from the manufacturing company and the various airlines out there. Updating an existing design is far less daunting. The basic bones for the aircraft are already there, and if the changes are within certain parameters, you can get through regulations pretty easily. After all, the base aircraft has already been through that process and had been approved. Likewise, if the changes aren't dramatic, pilots might be able to, to fly those planes without any real additional training or having to go into any flight simulators because the aircraft, at least in theory, is going to perform within the basic parameters of its predecessors. So there are a lot of strong business cases for sticking with a previously engineered design. Boeing's decision to stick with the 737 was both more economical and, due to the agreement it had reached with American Airlines, pretty much necessary. One of the big goals Boeing had was to improve fuel efficiency so that the 737 MAX could fly the same distance as older 737s while burning less fuel. That would also mean the 737 MAX could potentially have an increased range of flight compared to earlier 737s. And you could argue that ultimately, it was this push that would lead to the tragedies of the two 737 MAX crashes that would ground the global fleet 
of 737 MAX aircraft. It's a sort of cascade effect where one decision, that being to re-engine the 737, would lead to other decisions that ultimately set the stage for catastrophe. And by the way, this is all very easy for me to say in hindsight. I'm not trying to suggest that I would have spotted the potential for disaster before it happened. It's only because it happened that we're able to go back and analyze this and see where the mistakes were made. But at the time, it was not necessarily that clear, at least not outside of Boeing. Boeing chose for this new version of the 737 some engines from a company called CFM. CFM is actually a joint venture between GE Aviation and Safran Aircraft Engines. So in 2008, CFM introduced a class of engines they called the Leading Edge Aviation Propulsion Class, or LEAP, L-E-A-P. Boeing opted for the LEAP 1B model of engines, which has a thrust range between 23,000 and 28,000 pounds of thrust, or between 100 and 120 kilonewtons of thrust. A newton is the amount of force required to accelerate an object with a mass of one kilogram and an acceleration of one second per second. CFM chose several engineering advancements that contributed to better fuel efficiency in its LEAP engines compared to older aircraft engines. That includes carbon fiber composite components that are stronger uh, than earlier materials at a fraction of the weight. So while the engines are big, larger than previous 737 engines, they don't necessarily weigh as much as those older engines do. CFM also used additive manufacturing, more commonly called 3D printing, to produce those components. The LEAP engines also pre-mix fuel and air together before the mixture hits the nozzles that enter the fuel into the combustion chamber. So older engines would inject essentially a mist of fuel into the combustion chamber and the mixing of the fuel and the air happened inside the chamber itself. But according to CFM, that meant lower fuel efficiency and greater emissions. So they say that this new method cuts down on emissions and you burn more of the fuel. The engines would give Boeing the boost in efficiency needed to meet American Airlines requirements. In August 2011, Boeing officially announced the development of this new version of the 737, and the company began to market the aircraft to various airlines. By December 2011, Boeing found a customer in the form of Southwest Airlines, which put in an order for 150 of the aircraft, aircraft that were in the earliest stages of development, mind you. From 2011 to 2015, Boeing worked on the design and production of the 737 MAX. And here's where we see some other decisions that would ultimately contribute to the problems we saw when it entered service. The new engines were larger than the previous 737 engines, as I mentioned earlier. And traditionally, those earlier 737 engines would be mounted under the 737's wings. But these new engines were too big to do that and still allow for adequate ground clearance between the bottom of the engine and the ground itself. So that meant the engineers had to figure out where to put these engines on the body of a 737. And ultimately, they decided to move the engines forward along the body ahead of the wings. And they're positioned in such a way so that the exhaust of the engines is directed underneath the wings, which makes sense. You wouldn't want it to go right up against the wings. You melt your own wings off. And also, the way that they are positioned now means that the bottom of the engine has sufficient ground clearance. 
But moving the engines forward had another consequence. It changed how the aircraft moved in flight. Moving the engines forward meant that in flight, the 737 MAX has a slight tendency to tilt its pitch upward. In other words, to tilt its nose up toward the sky in a climb. That can be a problem for lots of reasons, but a big one is on takeoff. I mean, obviously, you're climbing in takeoff. And in that phase, pilots guide a plane into a climb to reach cruising altitude. So you don't want a plane to overcompensate and tilt further back than the planned climb for lots of reasons. But a big one is that it can cause the engines to stall out. So for a jet engine to work, you have to have air flowing through that jet engine in sufficient quantities. So it has to be moving there in a, at a sufficient speed, essentially. I covered this in recent episodes, so I'm just going to do a quick overview. In a jet engine, incoming air hits fan blades that compress that incoming air, which then either flows in or around a combustion chamber where the engine ignites fuel. The resulting hot gases in the combustion chamber expand and then force their way out of the chamber through an exhaust nozzle in the back of the chamber. And as they escape, they hit rotors on the rear side of the engine. And the rotors connect through a shaft to the fan blades that are in the front of the engine. So as that exhaust is coming out the back of the engine, it hits the rotors, and the rotors turn because of that rapidly escaping gas. And because it's connected by a shaft to the blades in the front, it turns the fan blades in the front of the engine, and the whole thing perpetuates itself because of this continuous burn inside the combustion chamber. But for this to work, you have to have a sufficient amount of air flowing into the engine in the first place. This is also why it's necessary to jumpstart a jet engine on the ground. They force compressed air through the jet engine in order to get it going because you cannot get it started any other way. Now, if the plane were to tilt too far in an incline when it's climbing up into the sky, the angle of the engine compared to the airflow would be such that you wouldn't get enough air to go through the engine for it to maintain operation, and that's why it would stall out. You would have a lack of air to keep that whole process going, and stalled engines would clearly be a disaster. Once Boeing engineers recognized the tendency for the 737 MAX design to go into this unprompted tilt, they had to figure out how to address that problem. And their solution was a combination of hardware and software. On the hardware side, they relied upon sensors that would automatically analyze the difference between the airplane's attitude in the air and the angle of attack. So the angle of attack describes the angle of a plane's wing with respect to airflow. Angle of attack is a big component of lift. That's the force that keeps aircraft in the air. The other major hardware component is the aircraft's horizontal tail, which can tilt to change the plane's pitch. By altering the orientation of this horizontal tail, it could act as kind of like a rudder, except a rudder for the horizontal axis, not the vertical. And the effect is that it could force the nose of the plane back downward in one of these climbs. So in other words, it could affect the pitch of the airplane. The software overseeing the whole operation of this 
which would monitor the data coming in from the sensors and then send appropriate commands to the tail, is called the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, or MCAS. So if you've been following the story of the 737 MAX, you've likely heard the term MCAS thrown around. Now, in theory, MCAS would operate in the background and make the 737 MAX perform as if it were any other type of 737 aircraft. So it was designed to override pilot controls, but this also meant that if the system were to erroneously detect that the aircraft were in too steep a climb, the tail flap, or the horizontal tail rather, could force the plane into a dive and the pilots would be struggling to pull out of it and they'd have to figure out how to do that. And that would also mean knowing how to disarm the system. Okay. So Boeing was pushing hard to get the 737 MAX ready to compete with the Airbus A320neo aircraft. The FAA helped expedite things in 2015. According to the Seattle Times, the FAA managers put pressure on the agency's safety engineers, telling them to delegate the assessment process to Boeing's own staff. This, by the way, doesn't seem like it's completely unusual, but it did come as something of of a surprise to me. I did not know that's how things worked. Because in other words, what that means is the agency in charge of overseeing safety passed that job along to a company that produced the very thing the FAA was meant to oversee. And that might sound like it might not be the best idea. I happen to think it was a pretty bad idea. Now, granted, as we are now seeing, a failure on the part of a company to be completely honest and rigorous with its safety assessment process can result in terrible tragedies for passengers as well as real hardships for the company itself. So companies like Boeing have a very strong incentive to police themselves carefully. However, it sounds like that's maybe not what happened with Boeing's self-assessment. Again, according to the Seattle Times, the safety analysis understated how far the MCAS software could force the horizontal tail to move in an effort to stabilize the plane's pitch. The Times reported that, in reality, the software was able to make the tail move more than four times further than what the report indicated, meaning a much more dramatic change in pitch than what Boeing was claiming in the report. And Boeing's response to this was that, initially... MCAS would be able to move the horizontal tail at an angle of 0.6 degrees. It turned out it was more like 2.5 degrees. And Boeing said, well, it was only upon further study that we realized in order to pull out of a disastrous climb, you would need a greater movement than just 0.6 degrees, which is why we increased it. But at that point, we had already written the report. Seems to me like there might have been an addendum that needed to be added there, but what am I to say? So the report did not address how MCAS would reset after a pilot's response and would go into another dive despite repeated manual attempts to recover. So in other words, if a pilot were to respond to this unplanned dive and pull back, you know, activate the control and pull back on it, then It would stop the system temporarily, but it would just reset and start the cycle over again. And it might get more dramatic each time. The the amount of, of, uh, of tilt that the horizontal tail would take and thus the amount of dive the plane would go into would get greater each time. The criticism is that 
the safety measure had no self-correcting process that would discontinue the diving efforts after manual intervention. It would just keep going into a dive. So the argument is that there should have been a, a, a system in place where if a pilot intervenes, it deactivates this process. That was not in place. The Times criticized that the assessment stated that if the system were to fail, it would merit a hazardous danger rather than a catastrophic one. These have real meanings in safety assessments. Hazardous means that the outcome could result in injury or death to a small number of passengers in a plane. Catastrophic is essentially a designation stating that such a failure would result in the complete loss of the plane and everyone on board. So Boeing was saying that a failure of the system would merit the hazardous level, not the catastrophic level. So in other words, the uh, criticism is that the report was downplaying the actual outcome of a system failure. One other major problem is that Boeing neglected to include information about MCAS in its operation manuals for the 737 MAX. Pilots didn't know about it. Airlines didn't know about it. It wasn't until after the first tragedy that this would be amended. When we come back, I'll talk about that accident and the following events. But first, let's take another quick break. Perhaps because the FAA delegated the safety assessment duties to Boeing, perhaps because the 737 MAX was a variant on a tried-and-true aircraft design that had been in operation for, at that point, 50 years, perhaps because simulations failed to create the sort of scenarios that we would unfortunately see unfold in the actual operation of the aircraft, the 737 MAX passed certification without much hullabaloo. And to be fair, it seems in more investigations that some of those simulations actually did show some problems, but Boeing didn't really address that at the time. There was also no need to train flight crews on how to operate the 737 MAX because, in theory, it behaved so much like other 737s, particularly the 737NG, which was the immediate predecessor of the MAX. Pilots reported that they essentially had to complete a one-hour course on a tablet and not even spend any time in a simulator before they would be certified to fly a 737 MAX. However you want to lay it out, the end of the matter is that the 737 MAX received its certification and Boeing began to deliver the aircraft to customers. One of those customers was Melindo Air, a carrier based out of Malaysia and a subsidiary of a larger airline called Lion Air. On October 29, 2018, Lion Air Flight JT610, which was a 737 MAX 8, crashed just 13 minutes after takeoff from Indonesia. The plane crashed into the sea off Jakarta. All 189 people on board died as a result of that crash. Among them were 20 Indonesian government officials. The plane had been in use for about two months. A pilot had reported a problem with the aircraft right away, requesting a return to the airport before they lost control of the aircraft. The CEO of Lion Air at the time reported that a different pilot had reported the same plane for a, quote, technical issue, end quote, 
earlier on that week, but that the aircraft had been cleared to fly the following day. An investigation following the crash indicated that one of the angle of attack sensors had malfunctioned on the Lion Air flight, and it had mistakenly indicated a dangerous change in pitch and an oncoming engine stall, and none of those conditions were actually existing at the time. But the MCAS software and system went into action, forcing the horizontal tail to move the, 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 the nose of the plane downward and put it into a dive. The pilot was un- unable to counteract that, and the plane crashed as a result. Making matters worse was the fact that Boeing had not indicated the MCAS was even a thing. The pilots had no way of knowing what it was that was causing the plane's nose to dive or how they were supposed to stop it. On November 6, 2018, Boeing issued a report revealing MCAS to pilots and airlines for the first time. The report also gave instructions to pilots on how to override MCAS in the event of a failure. Now, at this point, it wasn't yet certain that MCAS was at fault, but the signs were starting to point that way. In the meantime, Boeing continued to receive orders for the 737 MAX from various airlines and was still in full manufacturing mode. One thing Boeing did that later drew an enormous amount of criticism was to place some responsibility on the pilots themselves, stating that they should have known to cut off the switches to the plane's stabilizers. But analysts who looked at the recovered flight data for the Lion Air disaster said that what the pilots had experienced didn't look like a stabilizer runaway scenario in which an element like the 737 MAX's horizontal tail would make a continuous, uncommanded movement. The Lion Air flight data showed that the tail movement was not a continuous motion and that the pilots were able to use the controls to pull up several times before the plane became uncontrollable. The analysts contradicted Boeing, saying that it wouldn't have seemed obvious to cut off the stabilizer controls based on what was happening. Then, on March 10, 2019, an Ethiopian Airlines flight from Addis Ababa to Nairobi crashed not long after takeoff. Air traffic control lost contact with the plane just six minutes after it left the runway. All 157 people aboard that plane died from the crash. Early analysis suggested that once again this was a failure of MCAS. Further investigation showed that the crew attempted to follow Boeing's instructions to correct for the failure to no effect. One day after the crash in Ethiopia, China and Indonesia authorities issued orders that all 737 MAX aircraft operating in those countries were to be grounded. Now, at that point, it was not yet known that MCAS was definitely at fault for that second crash. The day after that, on March 12, 2019, Canada, the EU, and India also ordered all 737 MAX aircraft grounded. The FAA in the United States would follow suit one day later on March 13, 2019. At that point, investigators were seeing signs that MCAS did play a part in the second crash. The U.S. Department of Justice began a sweeping investigation into the matter, and particularly into the process of the jet's certification. How could it pass certification if it had this incredible flaw? That investigation has uncovered other concerning details about the issue, including the revelation that a Boeing pilot had brought concerns about the flight system of the 737 MAX to the attention of Boeing officials back in 2016. 
Previously, Boeing management had maintained that they had no idea that the flight control system could cause a catastrophe. But pilot Mark Forkner said that while flying simulations that incorporated MCAS, he had encountered cases where the flight management system was, in his words, quote, running rampant, end quote. The revelation of this pilot's warnings came a little more than a week before Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg and John Hamilton, Boeing's lead engineer, were to appear before the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives in back-to-back hearings. During those hearings, officials accused Boeing of purposefully downplaying safety issues and concealing potential problems in an effort to achieve certification as quickly as possible and thus start selling planes as quickly as possible. Those officials are also concerned about the FAA's practice to deputize the very companies it is supposed to certify in the safety assessment process. Now, that's not to say that the U.S. government is now advocating for sweeping changes in certification or or even going to come down hard on Boeing, because it's not as simple as that. At issue isn't just the fate of Boeing, which is an enormous employer in the United States. That also means that there's a whole lot of folks who are potentially voters who could be affected by any massive problems that Boeing faces, and politicians are a little squeamish about doing things that could potentially upset voters. There are airlines that have aircraft they can't use. They're dealing with this problem too. They're looking at lost revenue. And there are all these companies that supply Boeing with components, like GE, you know, one of the companies responsible for the 737 MAX engines. GE has had its own share of problems recently. You can listen to my episodes about General Electric that published not too long ago to learn more about those. Because the 737 MAX is effectively on hold, it could potentially cost companies like GE and others billions of dollars. Boeing, for its part, has made major changes to MCAS. A big one was that moving forward, MCAS will take into account both angle of attack sensors before changing the horizontal tail's orientation. It would no longer accept just one stream of data as being enough to change the plane's pitch. One of the other major criticisms directed at Boeing from a design level is that the MCAS sensor was a single point of failure with no redundancy. And when coupled with Boeing's self-assessment that a failure just represented a hazardous outcome but not a catastrophic one, created a false sense of security. Another big change is limiting how much the tail will move. Like I said, the original safety assessment said the tail would only move 0.6 degrees, but in practice it was more like 2.5 degrees at maximum. Boeing has also stated that it is going to limit the system to activating for a single cycle as opposed to the reset-repeat process that was seen in both Lion Air and the Ethiopian airline crashes. Then there's the long tail stuff that Boeing's going to have to deal with, stuff like trust and perception. While Boeing has made efforts to address the problems in its 737 MAX flight systems, the company's credibility has taken a hit, as has the perception of the FAA. There are still lawsuits against Boeing that are making their way through the legal system that are a direct result of the 737 MAX disasters, and Boeing still has hopes that the aviation agencies around the world will lift the grounding of the 737 MAX aircraft before the end of 2019 or in early 2020. Meanwhile, the company has another headache to deal with. In October 2019, reports came out that aircraft operators had discovered cracks 
on the 737NG aircraft, or at least some of them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the 737NG is a predecessor to the 737 MAX. It's been in service for several years. It doesn't have the MCAS software or the engine placement of the MAX, and it remained in operation without any problems. But in early October 2019, U.S. officials ordered an inspection of 737NG planes that had completed more than 30,000 cycles. That is, more than 30,000 takeoffs and landings. And the the whole point was to look at the section of the plane where the wing attaches to the body of the plane. It's a part of the plane that is called, and I swear I'm not making this up, the pickle fork. Several airlines outside of the United States also began to inspect their 737NGs, even those that had not yet completed 30,000 cycles. And reportedly, some of those aircraft have had cracks appearing in the pickle fork as well. Boeing stated that out of the 1,737NGs that had been inspected so far, inspectors had only indicated that 5% of them have had cracks. Still, it's another indicator that things are not going so great for Boeing right now. We'll have to wait and see how this all plays out, whether or not the 737 MAX will return to service, whether or not people will trust it. Uh, you've had a lot of U.S. politicians already saying that they would not get on a 737 MAX to take a trip based on what they've seen. So there may be an inherent trust that ends up being an enormous barrier to the 737 MAX, even if the technology is proven to be safe. So that's a huge issue. And once you've eroded trust, it's very hard to rebuild. So we'll have to wait, see how that turns out. Uh, I am very curious to see it myself. I've definitely been interested in this subject. I fly fairly frequently, and knowing about this is something that I think is important. Um, it's also something that fills me with anxiety, if I'm being perfectly honest, but I'd rather know than not know. Anyway, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can tell me on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw, or uh, pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com, where we have an archive of every episode we've ever recorded. We also have a link to our online store where you can buy Tech Stuff merch, and every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 